Thank you for tuning in to a Budapest Beacon podcast. My name is Ben Novak. Joining me today is Peter Kreko, Executive Director of Political Capital, a Budapest-based think tank and consultancy. Peter, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for the opportunity. According to a recent poll by Policy Agenda, which was commissioned by Zoom.hu, two-thirds of Hungarian voters believe there is a George Soros party and that this party will run in the next election. Now, you've come out and said that you're not a fan of this poll. Why not? I'm not the only one who is not uh, a fan of this poll. There are uh, quite a lot of serious analysts and even uh, public opinion posters such as Andre Hahn, um, a long time uh, doing these researches who agree with me that the uh, question as it was phrased was highly unfortunate. Practically, uh, the question is about that. Um, do you think that George Soros's party could win the election. And uh, there are yes, no options, and also an option like this party does not exist. But if you say to this question logically, uh, that do you think that uh, George Soros's party will win the election, that no, uh, the reason for saying no can be that uh, this party does not exist. Uh, so I don't think that in this these responses, we can differentiate between the real stupid responses, the ones who think that George Soros' party exists, and the ones who say that this is an irrealistic uh, thought. So my, my short assumption would be that this is more a pseudo-poll, uh, a, a piece of fake news uh, on fake news, and I don't think it, it really helps to understand the uh, current Hungarian uh, situation. Of course, fake news is a big problem in Hungary. Of course, anti-source uh, propaganda is a big problem in Hungary. Of course, there is a big uh, chunk of the Hungarian voters who are receptive to that, but don't uh, paint the problem even bigger as it is. So I, I, I don't really trust this vote. Well, you know, this, this in, in the Hungarian media, the way this played out was, it, it was very sensational. So pretty much everybody picked up this story and ran with it. And it was ha ha ha, almost as though, look how stupid Hungarians are. Everybody believes this, this nonsense. Two thirds of voters believe this nonsense. But what, what was strange about it is that when you think about the amount of propaganda that uh, that Hungarian society has been inundated with since about 2015, very heavily George Soros-oriented propaganda, that you would actually believe that poll. You would believe that there's something to that. You would almost not even question whether that poll was was accurate in any sense, which then begs the question, uh, what if what effect is propaganda having on Hungarians? So if we can... If a poll like that can be done, and if the media can report on it, and people would believe the media reports given the, the circumstances, what effect is propaganda having on Hungarians? First of all, I would say that uh, in a country where fake news becomes pretty dominant, and in uh, I think the specificity of Hungary as in an EU and NATO member, is that fake news are coming from the very mainstream of the media, what we call the government-organized media. The public media plus the media that is owned by pro-governmental oligarchs and financed by huge amounts of uh, state uh, advertisements. So uh, if you have a fake news industry from 
enormous amount of governmental money, then we cannot be surprised that the fake news logic, where I would say the hyper-partisan logic appears on the left liberal side as well, which means that that, uh, even the half information or the distorted information can get viral and and picked up. And uh, this is pretty much about wishful thinking. So uh, if we take a look at the polls and see that Fidesz has around 50-60%, the ones who feel really bad about it, they would like to think that all the Hungarians are stupid. And uh, I, uh, we had quite a lot of polls and even analysis on conspiracy theories and fake news in Hungary. And the reason why people are really interested in conspiracy theories and fake news is that they like to read about people who are more stupid than they are. So we all like that. Don't. So it's it's true. No question about that. But but my point would be that if it, uh, first of all, this poll, I think, shows nothing. Second, uh, the er- earlier uh, polls on the impact of the anti-George Soros campaign showed quite a limited impact. Uh, there was not very strong receptivity, let's say, beginning of, of last year, for example. But as time goes on, Of course, if you invest a huge amount of money into a big lie, it will make an impact. So what we can see more and more in Hungary is a situation what we can read about in 1984. So it's really Orwellian, where if you switch, sit in the car, switch on the radio, anti-Soros campaign, you go out to the street, uh, billboards come, anti-Soros campaign, switch on the TV, anti-George Soros campaign. It's everywhere. It's the, it's the air you breathe. And after that, we cannot be surprised that it has an impact. So it's not because Hungarians are, are more stupid than any other nations. Uh, let's take a look at what happens in Russia, for example. Mm-hmm. If you have a, an environment that simply creates this virtual reality and, and the contradicting narratives are, are much more silent, then uh, we cannot be surprised that the result is that the George Soros, anti-Soros campaign has its impact. Uh, HVG.hu posted an article where they, they, uh, they wrote about how much money the prime minister's office spent on George Soros and migration-related propaganda in 2017. The currency conversion comes out to about $115 million in one year, just on this. So if you take this and you couple it with... Um, the content that is coordinated. Um, You can see this as a journalist clearly here that in pro-government media, there is a coordinated content distribution system. It's in television, it's in radio, and it's in print, and it's on the the internet news sites that when you do this for a long enough time and you just bombard people with this, of course, the ideas will... It's kind of like it plants a seed in their their minds. I remember in 2015, um, the... Refugee crisis didn't start with refugees from the Middle East. It started with people from Kosovo coming up in early 2015. That was right around the time the government started putting up the, uh, it was about late springish of 2015 when they started putting up the billboards. And if I'm not mistaken, I think it was Media and Honendra who did a poll months after that was following people's inclinations to believe in conspiracy theories. And what he saw was that as time went on and more and more propaganda went out, 
on from the government that there was a trend that they were able to identify in their polling where people were much more open to conspiracy theories regarding migration. So there you go. That is the impact of it. Do you think is this is this what the government is trying to run its campaign on? Because we are moving into election season. There is no there is no platform for Fides. The, the, the platform is, is George Soros, really, and the, and the Soros network. But is this going to be the hallmark of the campaign? Just just jumping back uh, once before I I respond to the specific question, I I think you're you're absolutely right that that uh, there is a huge amount of of governmental money put into this campaign, and also we can add into uh, to that uh, all the uh, government advertisements not related to the George Soros campaign. Why? Because they mostly go to media outlets close to the government that are pushing this uh, fake news narrative. So practically the the journalists at these uh, governmental organized media, they receive their salaries from state money and write down the anti-migrant, anti-George Soros conspiracy theories and, and fake news and so on and so on. So it's, it's even a much bigger amount overall, I think, than what you mentioned, which is, I think, even on the scale of the uh, media um, uh, expenses uh, in the United States sounds huge. And if we talk about the United States, I, I do think that what we can observe right now in Hungary is pretty much a human thing. I think we have one general big illusion or had, and I think we have to forget it. And this illusion is that after the Second World War, after all the horrible events of the 20th century, the mankind is more wise than before. It's that direct propaganda has less impact on us than it had because we became more civilized. It's simply not the case. I'm more pessimistic in that respect. And if we take a look at the polls from the United States that showed that almost 50% of the Republicans thought that the Pizzagate conspiracy theory is true because it was pushed by- Michael Flynn's son. Michael Flynn and his son and the whole fake news industry, partially from Russian money, but partially just from Macedonian teenagers who wanted to uh, make a huge profit out of of this, this partisan logic. And so if it can happen in the United States, of course it can happen in, in Hungary as well, which is a much younger democracy, a much fragile democracy, and I would say it's not even a democracy uh, anymore. Back to your question about uh, can the George Soros campaign remain the central element of the campaign? Yes, i pretty sure it can and it will be. And the bizarre thing in Hungary And I think it shows the nature of right-wing populism, which is much more, I think, about the circus than about the bread. That if we just take a look at the economic figures in Hungary, they are pretty good. We have to admit it. It's about 4.23% growth last year. Um, And rising salaries, rising living standards. You do have to put an asterisk there, though, and say that, you know, this this economic boom, this is fueled by EU funds. No, no question about that. But but uh, I think voters usually are not interested about the process and the source. They are interested about the outcome. So as a government, you could just do a quite boring 
success campaign focusing on economic successes. But what the government does is almost the totally opposite. We, they almost don't use economic arguments. And okay, you can say that in 2002, they learned that in a good economic environment, they can lose elections on, on symbolic matters. Uh, and because of that, they just want to fuel their, uh, uh, let's say, the enthusiasm of their electorate with that that Soros campaign. But I, I really do think that uh, what the government tries to do right now is to change the mindset of the Hungarians from, let's say, a materialist to a emotionally to charged, uh, emotionally charged post-materialist logic, which is like that. Uh, the main question is not about if you uh, uh, if you if you have good living standard or not. The main question is that what is with our national sovereignty, and this is pretty much what. What this is a distant example, but Vladimir Putin did uh, with Russia uh, after the economic crisis. So right now, the the deal of the Russian regime is not like that. You have big economic, uh, let's say, growth, and and slowly, even if not equally increasing welfare, and in turn, you remain silent, but you have national pride, and in turn, you remain silent. If Orban can achieve to uh, turn the logic of the Hungarian society to this, let's say, nationalism mode, where the only question is that who defends us? The homeland. Who defends the homeland? Who, who defends the homeland? Then, if an economic crisis comes, there will be no problem because you can blame it all on the West, and this is what we'll we can we will be able to see when there there will be an, a new economic crisis. You know how ironic it is that you know if a crisis were to hit Hungary, an ec- economic crisis, that the amount of propaganda that went into labeling, identifying a rich Jew foreign speculator kind of sets the stage for a nice enemy figure to have in a crisis election. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and practically George Soros serves as a, I would say, an umbrella enemy, an umbrella enemy. And you can put all other enemies under that. So uh, Brussels, the uh, the opposition media, the NGOs, the opposition parties are all under the umbrella of George Soros. And that's the advantage of him as a symbolic figure that uh, in a conspiracy theory, you can just just unify all of your enemies because it's always easier to talk against one enemy than to talk against many enemies. And even right now, uh, Jobbik is under the umbrella of, of George Soros from the governmental perspective, which is uh, pretty ironic. Again. And is it resonating though? Is it resonating with the Hungarian public? So do, does the does the public really identify with these messages? Is Do they see a coherent logic to it? I don't think that you have to see a coherent logic uh, to be persuasive. So I think the, the government's argumentation is full of, of, of contradiction. Let me just highlight one about Jobbik. Jobbik appears at the same time uh, in the governmental criticism. On the one hand, they are criticized because they are too centrist. They are too pro-European. They are too pro-gay, they are too uh, uh, pro-cosmopolitan, they are not anti-Semitic anymore, and so on. These are dominant narratives on the government side. At the same time, uh, they have narratives about, oh, Jobbik is an extreme party. And right now, the uh, 
pro-governmental media is digging up analysis, including ours as well, back from 2011, 2012, where Jobbik was really an extremist party. And right now they are surprised, oh, how extreme Jobbik was in 2011, 2012. There is nothing new behind it, but it's, I, I think the political propaganda can uh, tolerate quite high level of, of contradictions. So I, I don't think it's a real problem. Another contradiction that I would highlight in a lot of uh, Fidesz voters think at the same time that the Br Brussels and the European Union is evil, that they want to uh, suppress national sovereignty. They are working on importing more and more refugees and so on. And to so undermine on. the Christian uh, European uh, heritage of Christian nation states. Absolutely. But if the question is about would you stay or leave, then they say, of course we stay because we want to belong to the uh, to the West, because we want to belong to Europe and European Union, but we want to be different, of course, because we need the money. So I think uh, the nature of, of right-wing populism in general is, is full of contradictions and, and voters can pretty much tolerate it. All right, let's move to the next topic. Now, speaking of George Soros, um, let's touch on what he said about MSP, the Hungarian Socialist Party, last week in Davos, Switzerland. So according to George Soros, uh, Orban has bought MSP's leadership and he's also got spies, or he's also got spies in, in these up-and-coming uh, <clears throat> small opposition parties. Now, it's difficult to write about this. Because uh, as a journalist, you certainly see signs that certain individuals within certain parties may be on some level towing the Fidesz line on particular issues. But what we do see is that beyond certain political collaboration, that, uh, you know, there is a certain bridge between the economic elite of MSP and Fidesz. And uh, I mean, you just look around at what's happening in construction or what's happening in media. I mean, the signs are there. That's evidence you don't really have to. I don't want to name names. MSP doesn't really know how to react to this. So uh, Horvat Chava, uh, Molnar Jolt, the how they've been talking about this in the press is almost comical, how they've been trying to defend it, deflecting as though it, this wasn't even related to MSP or something. But is this issue of MSP being bought by Fidesz, is, is this something that the electorate in Hungary actually deals with? Is this a question that comes up in conversation or was this something that George Soros pulled out of his ass? First of all, I have to put a disclaimer at this point, uh, political capital, uh, the institution that I'm leading receives some funds from open society institution. But uh, of course, I can say whatever I want about about the statement. I, I would, from a political analyst analyst's perspective, I would say that it's analytically uh, quite a precise statement. Uh, this is something that we we are talking about for a long time. I think the nature of the Hungarian regime is like that. Uh, if you want to be secure, you have to control not only the governmental side, but the opposition side as well. So I don't want to go as far to say that what we can observe more and more in Hungary is like uh, the Duma in Russia, but we are heading towards this model. So you have so, His Majesty's opposition, in a sense. Absolutely. And I think MSP is the key player. Uh, Laszlo Botka who was really not a successful politician and we can- Or go, candidate for prime minister. Can, candidate for prime minister, former one. He was practically uh, 
became the victim of his own party. They sabotaged his uh, his campaign to be prime minister within that, his own party. That 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 happened, and and when the president of the of MSP was asked about it, he did not even deny it. So I I think. Uh, this is pretty obvious, and and okay, I'm I'm a political analyst, so I don't have to. I can just talk about interpretation. I don't have to uh, prove everything. But for example, if we take a look at the Napsava, uh, the the uh, daily that is closest to the socialist party, with quite a lot of good journalists, we have to say quite a lot of good articles, but at the same time, a lot of governmental advertisements, including anti-source advertisements. Propaganda. Propaganda. So if you find the good, best thing in the world that you can do as a government is that you finance your own opposition as well, because you you leave a certain room for maneuvering. So it's not like they are not 100% your puppets, but in the most crucial issues, you can stop them criticizing you. In the most crucial issues, you can you can control the narrative. Uh, in the case of some votes, you can have some allies. And this is what we can observe more and more in, in Hungary. So I would say that this, what George Soros was talking about is pretty much a fact. And uh, and and we can we can see uh, the consequences in the lack of efficiency of of the politics of the socialist party. And usually, how it works is that the influence comes through a few individuals. It's always easy. so. It's not the party as a whole, but you have key key people. Absolutely, uh, individuals are always easier to buy uh, both up. Uh, than the whole parties. So what happens is that there is influence through some key individuals within the party, but I would not say that the Socialist Party as a whole is just full of collaborators. It's not, it's okay, not so true. This is, so this is, um, if we speak hypothetically here, if, if uh, Fidesz or Viktor Orban or whatever political machine he represents was to procure influence... Um, from key individuals in opposition parties, uh, can you tell me what ways that would how that would manifest itself? So how what is the what is the what does the transaction look like? So is it somebody walking into a guy's office, dropping off a briefcase of money? Does it have to do with business contracts? What what are the various situations in which this could could occur? I'm unfortunately not part of these schemes, so uh, corruption is always the story that I'm left out of. So I I can really just talk uh, from a hypothetical manner, and of course hearing uh, stories and rumors. So what what is pretty obvious is that uh, some people uh, in and around the Socialist Party uh, have some businesses uh, with the state itself. Uh, and the, and from that businesses, they receive uh, money that they can use to uh, exert influence within the party. So they, let's say they put this money, uh, comes from um, businesses with the state and state companies back to the party and they can buy their influence, they can extend their influence, uh, which is, again, it's, it's, it's a complicated game. So it's, uh, 
uh, even these politicians themselves, I would not say that they are just 100% representing Fidesz's interests. No, no, you could never do that, though. I mean, no, they have. You have to maintain the veneer of opposition, the illusion of opposition. Illusion, and also they, they, they uh, maintain a certain room for maneuvering. And even we can say that there is some kind of competition between these collaborators. Uh, so they, it's not a totally coherent uh, story. And, and it's even better if they have some competition because it, it even just increases the illusion of democracy, of, of pluralism. Because, of course, there are 50 shades of being pro-governmental. And, and you can, you can for, even from an opposition side, you can play several roles. But by the end of the day, there is the governmental money that simply um, puts a limit to uh, your uh, way of being an, a serious opposition party to raise serious questions. And there are some issues that you cannot really uh, uh, talk about. And I, I think it results in, in a situation when part of the opposition, and it's all, unfortunately, not only MSP, but other parties, you can find these players in other parties as well. It becomes a bit paralyzed, empty, and, and not so persuasive. So I think by the end of the day, voters can feel it. I mean, even if they don't have the exact knowledge, I don't have it neither, how does this exact scheme operate? They, you can just feel it when one uh, plays like His Majesty's opposition. I want to talk about the issue of political anti-Semitism. Um, it's campaign season. We're just a few months away from the elections. So political anti-Semitism kind of rears its head in these times. Um, just last week, three Fidesz lackeys, uh, former Prime Minister Peter Boros, uh, Fidesz MP and Deputy Speaker of the National Assembly, uh, Shandor Lezak, and Veritas Institute, a revisionist historian, Shandor Sokai. Veritas Institute is a government-founded, government-funded uh, historical institute. All the three of these guys would have gone to officiate a special birthday mass for Hungary's notoriously anti-Semitic uh, wartime leader, Miklos Horty. Now, this event would have taken place on Saturday, January 27th. January 27th, of course, is the day that is known as the uh, the day that uh, Auschwitz was liberated. And it's also International Holocaust Remembrance Day. Now, the event was canceled. So a lot of people started writing about it. The event got canceled. Um, and I believe it was yesterday or the day before, Magyar here, Lope pro-government uh, newspaper, published a piece written by Lezak, this, this Fidesz MP and Deputy Speaker of Parliament, which was a prayer that Lezak would have said at this mass for Horty Miklos's birthday. Um, I, I guess on the side here, in, in parentheses, I would mention that Horty's birthday is in June, not, not in January. And he says things like, Hungary's Jews ought to appreciate what Horty did for them. So my question here is this, at what point does the historic, does the discussion about historical complicity in something like the Hungarian Holocaust or the interwar period uh, turn into a discussion about political anti-Semitism today? So, you know, is there, is there this wink, wink, dog whistle, political anti-Semitism? Is this something that is you know, a calculated move by the government to provoke or antagonize Hungary's Jews in favor of currying, uh, you know, support from the nationalist far right? I, I don't have any exact proof for that, but my my gut feeling and, and 
impression is that it's it's rather calculated. And usually we find most of these scandals and debates uh, at times where the yeah, when elections are approaching. Well, but that wasn't the case or, with, with, with the Homan statue, and there was also the other one in, in Pavots, uh next to, just down the street from the Holocaust Memorial. Yes, absolutely. And also, don't forget that right now the government is under very strong attack from Jobbik, but even from the Socialist Party, because uh, a governmental official admitted that Hungary accepts some refugees under the radar, which is not a new information to be frank. It was publicly available information. Publicly available. On the other hand, I would say this is a good thing that at least the government uh, uh, behind the scenes and, and under this this ugly rhetoric uh, still has some uh, sensible actions when it comes to treating the refugees. But anyway, the government feels that they are under attack. And, and the reaction is practically to put very provocative topics into the public discourse. One was this Stop Soros uh, package of laws that is a legal nonsense, but on the other hand aims to uh, crack down on the civil society in Hungary under very uh, questionable uh, legal uh, terms. Um, and the other thing, and I don't think it's it's totally just by mistake, is that this planned um, ceremony and prayer for for uh, Miklos Horty. And I can quote, I can't call him because it was a private discussion, but I I can quote a a then high level uh, governmental official who told to me it, when there were big debates about this this Sabacak stair uh, square statue this uh, this this memorial this this monument that he told that don't get me wrong Viktor Orban is just enjoys his de- these debates why because the uh, the the intellectuals got obsessed. The intellectuals got crazy. The liberal um, intelligentsia is just jumping on it, and it diverts the attention from the more serious debates. and And it it was a high level Fidesz politician who told that. So uh, I think this is the same case now. And for that reason, I would say that that. This is a kind of provocation. And even if it's, yeah, it's really questionable. I mean, what uh, Lejac said is simply a nonsense uh, if we are malevolent. If, if, if we are malevolent, then it's, it's quite a morally uh, problematic statement because uh, Horty himself, according to Sirius... Uh, oh, he's an admitted anti-Semite. So in writing, he would... And not just that, but he... Well, in um, he was uh, pretty much part of the of the whole Holocaust story. It's like according to Laszlo Karsai, most of the Jews uh, were deported to Auschwitz and other death camps during Miklos Horthy's legacy. So it's the uh, right wing narrative is like that. Miklos Horthy was good. He wanted to defend the Jews, but when he had to, uh, when when the uh, Arrow Cross movement 
took over the the power, then the Jews were deported. And it's simply not the case. So Miklos Horty himself was responsible for the death of several hundred thousands of Jews. So there is really no reason for Hungarian Jews to be thankful. So from the 1920s up until the 1940s, um, you know, we kind of, you know, beat Nazi Germany to the punch here, at least as far as, you know, the legislative agenda in creating a separate class of, of citizens. Absolutely. So it's, it's, it was way before uh, the, the Nazis gained power in, in, in Germany that, that Hungary initiated the first discriminative laws against uh, the Jews. So it's like the narrative that anti-Semitism was brought into Hungary just by the Germans. It's a total lie. It's a self-fulfilling lie. And, and, uh, so for that reason, I would say that we have quite a lot of reasons to get upset by these statements, but we have to be, uh, we have to take into consideration that these are statements that Taylor made to make us upset and to deal with these issues. And for that reason, I, I think, even if it's, it sounds a bit cynical, that it's, it's better to ignore quite a lot of statements like this instead of, of, of uh, building a campaign on them because the government wants these topics to dominate the agenda uh, uh, and, and not other things that can be more harmful for them. In these debates, these symbolic debates, they can always win. They, they can just mobilize their own electorate and, and the others, they can make the other side angry, but uh, it does not really threaten their, their position at all. It is a very cynical and irresponsible way to do politics, but it, it seems to be working. It seems to be working. And, and I think because of the fact that Viktor Orban have became an important ally of Benjamin Netanyahu in Central Eastern Europe, uh, the, the uh, big meeting uh, with Visegrad leaders uh, and, and the uh, Israeli prime minister took place in Budapest. I think, uh, so after this, this relationship, uh, he, he simply can easily deny any kind of, of criticism about- I'm not a racist. I don't, I don't hate Jews. I, Benjamin Netanyahu comes to visit me. Look at us hanging out here. And he says, I'm a great guy. Absolutely. And, and the thing is that uh, this is pretty much what we can see, I think, on the, on the populist right and even the radical right on in Western Europe. I mean, uh, uh, parties that previously had, let's say, long adventures with anti-Semitism, such as FPÖ, such as the Sweden Democrats, uh, uh, such as the Flams Belang, they are right now big friends of not just the Jews, but the friends uh, of the state of Israel as well. And sometimes it's, it's reciprocal. I mean, even Gert Wilders. Uh, so they are welcome in Israel uh, and, and uh, they have some uh, diplomatic recognition. So from that respect, I think this, this refugee crisis brought the Hungarian right and Fidesz as well closer to this uh, uh, position of the pro-Israeli, anti-Muslim uh, parties that even if they sometimes play 
with with the feelings of anti-Semitism. It's not always easy to prove. It's not always direct, but they play with this feeling, but they can easily reject any kind of criticism of, of anti-Semitism because if you're friends with, uh, with, with the state of Israel, then uh, who can claim that you're, you're an anti-Semite? Sure, and as long as, as long as you're able to kind of create this narrative where the, you know, the historical enemy of the Judeo-Christian civilization are the Muslim hordes, yeah, we're heavy-handed and we're tough, but we are the ones who are protecting you from them. They are the danger. You can kind of bring, you can kind of cultivate a political base out of that. Anyway, let's talk about relations with Russia. And uh, specifically here, I want to know what you think the meaning and implication is behind Hungary's um, dispute with Ukraine, bringing this dispute to NATO. This is a really interesting time here. So for those who aren't necessarily aware of what's going on um, with Hungary, Russia, Ukraine, Ukraine passed a very controversial language law that said that uh, academic instruction would need to be done in the Ukrainian language. This obviously upset um, ethnic minorities living in Ukraine. The Hungarian government is firing back and has vowed to essentially block or veto any attempts by Ukraine to join the Euro-Atlantic community. So... My question is, what? how does this make sense for Hungary to be doing this? Because it doesn't seem to me that this would necessarily fly with the agenda of NATO at this time. I think it, it pretty much uh, goes in opposite. We should distinguish between um, valid, justified and, and just criticism of the Education Act uh, from the more problematic levels. So uh, the Education Act is really a controversial law. It was not just Hungary that raised criticism, but a lot of other EU member states as well. Poland, Romania, Bulgaria, Greece, for example. And there have been um, diplomatic criticisms on a lot of levels. And I think it's, it's, it's something that is totally okay, because uh, what happened with the Education Act is that some existing uh, rights uh, that uh, have been used by the minorities in, in uh, ed- education, uh, some of them have been simply terminated. And the case is much worse for the Russians than for the uh, languages of EU member states, but still it is a problematic issue. And I think it's 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 valid to raise this issue at a lot of international fora. What is a big question is that uh, why Hungary is the only country that went that far, that they promised not just to block generally all steps of Ukraine uh, towards Euro. Atlantic integration, but also they threatened to ne- initiate uh, the withdrawal of the EU-Ukraine Association Agreement, the real cause why people were dying on the Maidan. Uh, and I think the main main response to this question is that uh, Hungary have practically became a tool of of, uh, Russian uh, foreign policy, sometimes recognizing it, sometimes not even recognizing it. And uh, what what we can see in the Hungarian case is, first of all, it does not help the real cause. So does this veto uh, 
and does this these obstacles and fight against Ukrainians help Hungary uh, on the diplomatic level? Not at all. 11 NATO members filed the complaint that Hungary is doing these aggressive steps against Ukraine and it should be stopped. Uh, does it help the uh, Hungarians uh, ethnic Hungarians living in Transcarpathia, I don't think so. Uh, with these aggressive moves, Hungary could achieve nothing. And of course, uh, before the elections, nationalism is an issue in Ukraine as well. But if you just fighting frontally very hard, then of course you just strengthen the reactions, the nationalist reactions on the Ukrainian side as well. Based on my diplomatic sources, this is something that is brought up, you know, very actively in the background, but it's not an issue that you drag out in front of the public and you whip a country on and you say, this is why we are not going to let you join the club that we are a part of. So there's a quiet diplomacy versus you know, this all-out bar fight. Which finally backlashes and does not have the, uh, the, uh, to, to make an improvement uh, with uh, the law itself. It does not even help the, the uh, Transcarpathian Hungarians. And what was particularly worrying about this, this whole story was that the timing of the statement, it was like, Russia was waiting uh, with their official position on the Education Act uh, for Hungary to make their position. And Hungary's position was that it's totally unacceptable. We will block Euro-Atlantic integration. And then... The Russians say, well, look at Hungary, yes. EU member state. Peskov, the, the speaker of the Kremlin, uh, could stand up and say that, yes, if Hungary, an EU and NATO member state, sets is highly problematic... Of course, we say the same. But what is the big problem here? That for Russian language, the restrictions are much more uh, strict than for the Hungarian language and for EU languages. So this is a false equivalence between the Russian language and the Hungarian language. But this case pretty well reveals how Hungary became a tool of Russian diplomacy. And for that reason, I do think that this case of the Education Act was not the real cause for Hungary being so aggressive against Ukraine. It was a pretext. And to bring up shortly another example, the last OSCE meeting uh, at a joint session organized by the Hungarians and the Russians, uh, Peter Siarto, Hungarian foreign minister, sitting next to Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, made a statement in which he uh, called for an OSC mission uh, that would investigate uh, the human rights abuses and the violence in Transcarpathia, uh, because the as the argument went, uh, we can observe similar problems in Transcarpathia than in Donbass, uh, which oh, wow. is, I think, pretty much a false 
equivalence again, because of course, sometimes uh, ethnic Hungarians are targets uh, of nationalism, but it's absolutely not the same. Uh, and there are no reported cases like of similar actions, what we can see right now in Eastern Ukraine, where there is a war going on. So, and, and this is part of a big political game uh, that is initiated by Russia to totally relativize what happens in Eastern Ukraine. So it's not just us who's starting the war. It's not just us who, who uh, uh, finance and support nationalists with weapons, but it's also the Ukrainian side. And I think this is a very dangerous game. And I think it's pretty sad that Hungary and EU and NATO country have practically... Uh, become uh, in in these issues uh, the most important ally of Russian diplomacy, I think our NATO obligations would uh, would dictate something totally different. And even if uh, criticism should be, some kind of criticism is justified when it comes to the Education Act, I think these historic reactions uh, against Ukraine from the Hungarian diplomacy, these go well beyond the Hungarian interest. These not serve the interest of Hungary, these not serve the interests of uh, ethnic Hungarians in Transcarpathia, these serve only uh, the interest of one country, and this is Russia. You know, it speaks a lot to, you know, what their own priorities might be. And if that happens to be working with Russia on something like this, then then so be it. Yes, but but if, if the government says that they are, their main and primary goal is to support Hungarian sovereignty, then why we give up our sovereignty when it comes to formulate our foreign policy uh, positions and instead of going with our allies on the West, our institutional allies, we go with Russia. It's hard to explain, but it's even hard to explain from But is it? But is it? Is it really that hard to explain? Hungary is energy dependent on Russia. You see that you know the 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 economic elite of Hungary's ruling party is quite tied into you know Russian energy. Yes, in Hungary. <laughs> what I just say is that it's really hard to explain from the basis of Hungarian national interests. So the Hungarian government is referring uh, repeatedly to Hungarian national interests, but uh, it's pretty strange for me that Hungarian uh, interests seem to be. 90% overlapping Russian uh, interest and only 10% something else. So it's not really the case. So under the flag of the freedom fight, uh, Hungary gives off quite a lot of sovereignty and not to the West, not to Brussels, but to Russia these days. Uh, and there are many indications of this trend. The the uh, Pox nuclear power plant, which is simply something that you cannot explain on the basis of energy policy and economic uh, rationales. The uh, <laughs> third metro tender in Hungary, which was which is a disaster, and and people in Budapest suffer day by day by the low quality uh, trains uh, that we we renovated uh, by the Russians instead of the Estonians, and and uh, on, on a very poor quality, and and the examples goes. Uh, go on and on. If we take at the economic figures, they don't really see too much advantage of this so-called Eastern opening. But of course, there are some governmental close financial interest. And 
financial interests very close to the prime minister himself. In the case of Hungarian Energy Society, for example, when it's easy to prove that uh, who does benefits from this horse story. Speaking of Russia and politics in Hungary, let's uh, let's close up here with an opportunity for you to engage in some shameless self-promotion. So you've got a new book coming out, The Hungarian Far Right, Social Demand, Political Supply, and International Context. Um, there is no far right in Hungary. So what is this book about? Yeah, we, we, I, we just like to write about non-existing issues. And and uh, and that's 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 our obsession. So that's why we wrote the book. It's, of course, a fiction. No, this is an academic book, uh, but, but I can highly recommend it to anyone who is interested about the political developments of the last, let's say, 10 years in Hungary. The interesting thing about the Hungarian far right is that... Uh, it seems like it it came from nowhere. Uh, between 2002 and uh, 2010, there was no parliamentary representation of the Hungarian far right because MIP fell out of of parliament, and and Jobbik was not strong enough for a long time. Uh, but uh, after, in 2010, um, Jobbik could could make it with 15 percent of the votes, and it became the strongest and the most radical party in Central Eastern Europe and, and at a certain time even in whole Europe uh, and making big uh, media attention with the Hungarian Guard and so on and so on. And, uh, but still it, it was only an, an opposition force and I think after 2015, the beginning of the refugee crisis, uh, we can observe a very interesting parallel tendency. One is that that the official institutional far-right Jobbik is becoming more and more moderate. In short, it's becoming a boring centrist party. Uh, on the other hand, Fidesz feeling the opportunity in the refugee crisis to exploit nationalist and xenophobic sentiments, they practically became a genuine far-right party that fulfills uh, all the three conditions of far-right parties that Kasmudde, the one of the best uh, experts of far-right mentioned, populism, authoritarianism, and nationalism, and an ethnicity-based a uh, political vision that is that uh, puts the uh, ethnical in-group and the nation in into the uh, center. So I think we arrived at a point. Uh, what we can see right now is that Fidesz has practically became a genuine far-right party based uh, their ideology on their fight against the Muslims, the eternal fight on conspiracy theories and so on. On the other hand, there is a softer far-right party as well, the biggest party of the opposition uh, that is is in rivalry with, with the governmental side. So I think in about 10 years, we arrived to the point where the far-right became the mainstream, the norm in Hungary. And, and in our book, we discuss the uh, national implications of that, but also the regional and international implications of this whole story. The Hungarian far-right, social demand, political supply, and international context about Hungary, a country where both the ruling party and the largest opposition party are both far right. Well, we look forward to reading it next Tuesday. For those of you who are in Budapest, it's next Tuesday, right? The, the launch next of the, Wednesday. I'm sorry. Next Wednesday in Budapest, two o'clock. Uh, we will put up information to where you can go. If you want to attend this event, if you want to go see what the book launch will be like, Peter, thank you very much for your time. Look forward to doing this again. Thank you very much for having me. 